Hey guys, Alex here, and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio once again, since my dog is still recovering in a crate 24-7 until the end of whatever a month is. God help me, it better be in two more weeks. But, um, so I'm dropping in a, so two things. First, I'm dropping in an old, um, episode from a previous podcast where I talked to my cousin Danny, who you've heard from before, about Kill Bill Volume 1. I really had fu- a lot of fun with this. I know Dan really had, had a lot of fun with this, so I'm happy to re-release it. It gets him on the podcast again without tricking him into a Skype call. Um, <laughs> but in any event, the other thing I want to say is probably not a lot of you went to this, but there was a website, a like web portal, if you will, associated with the podcast. That got furiously hacked, so I had to pull it down. Um, it's a, it, it, the, the internet's bad, man. The, like so, sometimes, sometimes the internet's like good. Let me podcast. Let me talk to all of you. But other times, it's like, hey. What if we wrecked your shit for no conceivable reason other than to really annoy you, like, specifically? So I pulled that down. I still have the URL. Like, I still use the URL, but I would encourage you not to go to it right now. I don't know what I'm going to do with that URL, but I'm going to do a couple things. And it's... uh, And so, yeah... So I'm, I'm. That will be back in some form. I'm not sure what form, but for right now, Lunchbox Publishing has been taken out of commission because it went sideways in a way that I had never previously thought. Like, oh hey, this, is, this will happen to me, which sucks because that site was really beautiful and worked really great, and now it's gone forever. Um, but on that note, um. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Definitely check out, subscribe to the podcast if you do. And I will talk at you later. Hi, amigos, all 300,000 bounty hunters in the star system. How y'all doing? Have like intro music or anything? I, I put that in after, and we're already recording, oh, okay. so it's already there we go. Okay. Works for me. Okay, so uh, Kill Bill Volume One, huh? Yeah. Hey, Dan. What's up? Hey, how's it going, Alex? Good. Um, you're 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 my actual cousin, like not weird internet humor. <laughs> we are blood related. We are blood related. This is a family affair. There's I'm, no denying. I'm finally. Uh, see, I did I did the reverse of what most pyramid schemes tell you to do. I conned everyone I knew before my family, and then I like turned inward. 
it's good to burn those bridges first, though, because the family bridges are are thicker and made of more flammable material. So That's it's going to be a more fabulous explosion. And also, as my, as listeners of this podcast will know, at some point it stopped being my fault because my friends were like, hey, we should do that podcast again. I'm like, now it's your fault. Welcome back to hell. There you go. But how are you well, holding up? You know, in... I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm good. You, you, you're dealing with... How is winter where, where you are? Uh, well, winter is actually pretty awesome for me now that it's finally snowed here on the East Coast. Uh, I actually went snowboarding with my sister, your other cousin, Molly, yeah. yesterday. Uh, we hit Camp Gaw Mountain up here, in, uh, up here in New Jersey, so that was pretty awesome. Yeah, I don't... For, for obvious reasons... Not the ones you think, mostly coordination-based. I did not snowboard or ski. <laughs> it, is, it is a sport with no brakes. There is no, no handbrake. You are entirely reliant on your ability to uh, physically maneuver quickly and gracefully. So maybe not, you know, maybe not something that even I should be attempting, <laughs> but I do it anyway. I was going to say, but um, yeah, I know somebody... No, it's all who, it's all the skateboarding in my youth, and I and it's counterbalanced with all of the concussions between now and then. So yeah, that that sounds that sounds about right. Yeah, exactly. I, like, try to keep the concussion to like one every like six or seven years. I have to now. I'm on a regular schedule. The the, la- the last one occurred when I like I'm gonna say won a fight with a guardrail in New York City in my head. Oh, yeah, that happened uh, about this time last year, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, just that was about. When I all of a sudden oh. owed a ER in New York City, like, 600 bucks for some asshole doctor who saw me for all three seconds. Oh, uh, that's cool. And I'm, I'm super glad we've uh, elected an administration and a uh, Congress that has decided to gut the, uh, the public health care system as we know it. Yeah. Super cool, super cool. Well, don't you don't you know that that's that's the best way to get rid of all the brown people, Danny? You just make them so they all die quicker. Well, exactly, and then you know you just got the poor whites, and they're they're clearly very confused as is. So oh, yeah, you always, know. always solid job there. You know, but so to the matter at hand. Actually, really appropriately, a tale of revenge. Yes, a tale of revenge. Yeah. And the particular reason why I thought this movie would be good for your inaugural recording of this podcast is because it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. And I think, isn't that your favorite director? He was for a long time. I don't know that I would say that anymore. But I did have a Reservoir Dogs poster above my bed for years and years yeah, and years. Yeah, like, I, I always say, I'm like, I oh, was that's more dance movies. I was obsessed with Quentin Tarantino movies growing up, and I still I still like his modern efforts, but I will say that they've they've lost a lot of their the charm that they had, um, especially I would say post Kill Bill. His movies uh, they're very well received; people love them a lot. But uh, I feel like starting um, post Inglorious Bastards, he's starting to lose a little bit of a uh, of his shine. I mean, I I I felt like I mean, and granted. This is a lot to do with the subject matter. I really liked Kill Bill, and then yeah. like Inglorious Bastards was a little bit farther away from what I was really looking for. And then yeah, yeah. he got really obsessed with 
Samuel Jackson and never comes back? Yeah. That like is that the right timeline? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I mean I think you just really rolled the dice on that, which I mean it's interesting to say because um Samuel L. Jackson and Uma Thurman both make appearances in uh in pulp fiction. Yeah, definitely. You know, so that's interesting, you know. But would- uh Samuel L. Jackson is in neither of the uh, the Kill Bill films, as far as I remember, right? No, he's not. He, like, yeah, because I, I watched specifically Volume One. I just wanted to remember about Volume Two real quick. I know he doesn't appear in Volume One for sure. I just yeah, watched he, it he, he doesn't. He doesn't appear in Volume One or Two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is kind of interesting. Um, the, Quentin Tarantino. That is something that he does that a lot of directors do that I like a lot. Um, he is like the, uh, the same people in like different roles constantly. Yeah. Yeah, rotating cast, kind of like Wes Anderson is another great yeah, example of someone that does that you know all the love, time. You know what I love to do? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if I'm super dumb, I like to pretend that, like, all the parts that people play are connected. Oh, yeah, yeah, like so one like, extended fan universe. Yeah, one extended I canon. I like, try to, like, write, write the in-between, like, um, and uh, did you see... Uh, the American version of Crying Freeman with Josh Brolin. No, I missed it. No, I'm no, sorry. no, Old Boy. It was Old Boy. Oh, I did not see the American version. I'm very familiar with the Korean version, though. Um, in the American version of Old Boy, Samuel Jackson, and this is like right around when he was uh, Fury in the X Men movie and not the and um the Marvel movies. He was uh-huh. a security guard that gets, like, tranked by Josh Brolin. <laughs> That's so, insane. So I, like, wrote my head, I'm like, well, you know, Fury had, like, an eye replacement surgery and then, like, had a few bad years and all of a sudden he's down in luck and now he's just this, like, glorified mall cop in a cubicle keeping an eye on, like, weird prisoner people. Well, that's the that's the private contractor lifestyle, you know. One one minute you're in a cubicle, the next minute you're across the world, blasting the heads off of various uh, enemies of the United States. Yeah. Did you see Did you see Hateful Eight? By the way. Uh no, I missed Hateful Eight. Actually, I haven't seen it yet. I've been kind of I've been kind of taking a hiatus from going to movies at the theaters. Um, so I kind of wait for stuff to come out on yeah. digital uh, format, and then cost? I watch it. What's up? Any particular reason other than cost and time? No, it's literally uh, cost. I live within a stone's throw of a mall with a gigantic IMAX movieplex. Uh, actually, two different ones uh, that I can drive to within, like, I would say 15 to 20 minutes, like, wow. door to door. I just choose not to go because it's just so expensive, uh, especially when you live with someone and you pay you know, utilities and rent and all yeah, that yeah, fun th- stuff. No, no I, I, yeah. I totally get that. I mean, hard, like, I, I used hard to... Hard to justify, especially when she gets free movie tickets from her job. Yeah. Her very, like, kind of arty, international, like, uh, basically Oscar bait. Her her place of business uh, basically puts out mostly Oscar bait. It's an art house cinema, so... Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I used to, when I... So you remember when Optimum had, like, the deal, like, you got to see free movies every Tuesday? 
Oh yeah, I remember that. That was right when I was in college. I actually used to do that at the um, at the Claremont Theater. In yeah, Montclair. it was right around when I was. I, I think I was just out of college. Yeah, and so like I used to see every movie that was released. I feel like I want to say three years. Oh of, yeah, like, yeah. I, I just saw every freaking movie. That yeah. and when I was in school, I don't know if your school did this. Um, but Montclair used to have a program where basically you could get like super cheap movie tickets at this Cineplex where they had off-campus housing, basically like right next to the Cineplex. Oh, so you yeah. used to be able to like take a shuttle bus out to this place and get movie tickets for like $5, $7, whatever it was. Well, I forget. You're all, you're also, it was way reduced. You're also assuming that I, I lived in a place that wasn't the ghetto and had a movie theater that wasn't also just a site of a stabbing. <laughs> well, like, you know, we, I, we I, assume, like, I assume even the ghetto, the ghetto has a, has a Foot Locker mall with maybe like a three-screen multiplex. <laughs> I think you're thinking of the nice part of the ghetto. We were but, yeah, the ghetto there we part go. Of the, the border. <laughs> the border of, the, of that area. Yeah. We were like... Would you like some Japanese food from this, like, weird door-shaped hole in the wall? Put a fist in with some money and maybe you'll get Japanese food, maybe you'll get Coke. Who knows? But we should stop being distracted, although I know it's hard for us. No, that's good um, intro, though. That's good intro yeah. material, and I feel like you can cut into that. So I have um, I have notes on the movie if you want to start yeah, with go, that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so what do you want to do? Do you want to go through the plot or do you want to just, like talk about it or well i want to talk about a couple of couple of different things and we can just see like what that like kind of uh inspires in conversation sure because uh, i have a couple of different things and i think we should kind of go like plot by plot i kind of have the wikipedia um article for it open hang on that's for the soundtrack let me just open up the movie one yeah there we go Okay, so yeah, let's go through the plot. Let's let's go through the plot first, and then we'll see how that uh, how that goes, pretty much in terms of conversation. Okay. So, or actually, well, like I don't know. What do you What do you think is best? Do you think it's better to talk about the plot or just about like my impressions of the movie? Um, I I think we could probably do like a mixture of both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We can. You want? Let's start off like scene by scene kind of like that's probably the best way to go about doing it maybe yeah um, um so i guess we should start at the start yeah here we go okay so <laughs> yeah three three two one okay kill bill um the very first thing actually i don't know if you remember the very very beginning intro of the movie is actually stolen from a production company that has nothing to do with the movie. Wait, that's and, what that is? I always thought that was, like, yeah. super weird. No, okay, so the Shaw brothers were two producers of kung fu movies in the 1970s. Oh, yeah, and okay. The whole, the whole point of the Kill Bill series is, in part, that it is an homage to the 1970s, like, uh, especially uh, girl-motivated kung fu which is, or girl centric rather kung fu, which is generally tales of revenge against you know lovers that they got jilted by or were somehow like disrespected by their family, you know, and then they have to come back 
and like prove their worth through this whirlwind series of revenge. So like the Shaw brothers. So, so like, like a seventy version of Machine Girl. I don't know if you've ever seen Machine Girl. No, I haven't. I'm gonna miss out on a lot of your anime references, but no, we're gonna roll no. with them punches. It's actually a live action movie. Oh shit! Okay. I think it was so made I, like early aughts. Like I, I, it's it's super weird. At some point, this girl gets her arm like tempura fried while it's still on her body. Weird. Wow, I love it. I love it already. <laughs> you should probably I'm go so, watch that movie. For no I'm so like, well. Save it for a future episode. Yeah, definitely. There we go. That's going on. That's going in my notes for this episode. <laughs> so, Machine Girl in all caps, is if that feels appropriate somehow. Oh. Okay, so it opens with that Shaw Scope thing, which is stolen from the Shaw Brothers Company. Then the next thing, immediately after that, I have a bunch of, uh, like Quentin Tarantino, I'm trying to pick out like fun pop culture things that yeah. stick out to me. So the second thing is, is the music that comes on right after that is actually used um, by MF Doom on his Adult Swim produced um, co-production with uh, Danger Mouse, DJ Danger Mouse. Okay, so... You know, um, it, it was called Danger Doom was the yeah, title yeah, of the yeah. album. Yeah, I, I remember that album coming out. That was, was that before or after this movie came out? Oh man, actually, that's a great thing to look up real quick. Because let's I, I, actually. I think it would have to be after, because if we count the production of the movie, I mean, it would have to be after, right? Yeah, I think so. Let me see. Danger Doom. Well, I don't think it's an original piece of music, it's definitely a sample. No, but the, the one thing I do know about the soundtrack specifically of this movie is like, even though maybe, like, the, the movie's definitely like a. The Kill Bill movies are definitely, like, cult classics, but, like, the music from those movies, like, invaded your soul for, like, the next six years. It absolutely, and you're right, Danger Doom was actually, The Mouse and the Mask is the, uh, the name, the actual title of the album, not Danger Doom, that's, that's the name of the collaboration. Okay, yeah. Um, so The Mouse and the Mask was released in 2005. And this was released in 2003? Yeah, yeah, Kill okay, Bill. Yeah, was I, would, I would bet that it would that if he got it, he got it from Kill Bill. Yeah, after seeing like one of those like nine hundred commercials that used the five, six, seven, eight song. Well, that is the music of Quentin Tarantino's scores, and actually, okay, so that's another interesting way we can contrast his later work. If you think about Inglorious Bastards, and I believe also the Hateful Eight, both have original sound soundtracks for the most yeah. part yeah there's not there's not that. that same kind of like um like martin scorsese style pop culture reference that re referentiality that comes from music itself like popular music yeah so that's kind of interesting like I, I don't know i feel like that's like pretty cool um by the, by the way if, if anybody listening this is like this is way deeper than the like normal horse shit that Alex and his and his buddies like shovel into our ears about anime. It's because Danny actually went to school for all of this. Oh yeah, I uh, here's my credentials. I have a legitimate BFA from a four year university that I was able to con out of them uh, by watching <laughs> nothing but uh, all the movies that I wanted to watch for four years and writing 
uh, short five-page papers about them and handing them in sporadically. And I somehow got a degree out of that. Oh, and a pile of money. There's also a pile of loaned money that I had to fork over. Uh, <laughs> kind of like but, slowly leverage your own soul to a fool. Exactly. Yeah, I had to sell my, uh, my, my firstborn to the company store. And uh, and I had to work in a salt mine, but then I got yeah, so a bachelor of fine arts in film, and uh, I now work as a video editor professionally. Okay, so th so that that's why that's why Danny seems to like know way deeper into the stuff than like say I like I, I let I let loose some anime statistics every once in a while, but I, I straight up I looked at animation as a profession. I'm like. Maybe I don't want to sleep under my desk in a sleeping bag and eat cup noodles <laughs> 365 days a year. Well, I just feel like when I think about animators, um, do you remember the Clerks animated series at all? Uh, vaguely? Okay, so there's this one scene um, where they flash to their Korean animators, like, workshop... And it's just, like, a bunch of very skinny Asian men just, like, scribbling on, like, light boxes... And then um, there's, like, a very muscly Asian man who's, like, just yelling, like, back to work, keep on drawing, back to work. And he has, like, a whip, and he, he keeps cracking it, and that's, you know. Um, actually, in terms of, like, if you want to know something about, especially in Asia, yeah. if you want to know something about the way anim anime specifically is produced, but also animation by and large... Um, and people listening to this who haven't seen this show should go check this out. You can watch a show called Shirobako. It's just all about, like, them trying to produce a, like, fairly popular anime show. And, like, all the shit people have to do. And, like, how unglamorous it gets. Oh, Jesus. That sounds <laughs> like a nightmare. Out, it starts out really cutesy. And then it, like... It just gets, turns into the like, 11th it, circle. It basically it flips like a bunch of years ahead and like the main character just like like strung out production assistant and she's just like trying to get her shit done oh jesus and, but the director for like to give you an example of the kind of crap that they like reference at some okay. point Hidekiano just shows up in the show <laughs> that's wild um Okay, so uh, then the next thing that I had noted down is that uh, Quentin Tarantino credits this as his fourth film. Um, I didn't really do any research into that. I just thought it was interesting. <laughs> I just thought it was an interesting fact. You know, really? interesting if true. I was going to say, like, and maybe I'm just getting... What movie was he an actor? Because it was a movie he was an actor in. It was like Phone Sex or something. I had a name like that. Well, I know he was in From Dusk Till Dawn. He was okay. like an executive producer, a head writer, and he was George Clinton, uh, not George Clinton, oh my God, George Clooney's, George Clooney's brother in the movie. That would be hilarious if George Clinton was in a, uh, was in a vampire horror movie. But that sounds like somebody's fan fiction right there. I love it. That's somebody's like, uh, fetish. For sure. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. If, if if you wish hard enough, someone will deliver it to you, like on Twitter or something. Absolutely. 
Okay, so then the first, um, the next thing that happens after the credits is that um, we open on basically like mid assassination. It's black and white. The bride's on the ground, and then the first thing do that we, we see. Do we open on that, or do we open on um, the the like honky tonk sheriff driving into the? Chapel? Oh no, that's a that's a little bit afterwards. Okay, first thing, I did. First thing that we see is um, a woman in a wedding dress, the bride. She's wounded. It's all in black and white. And we hear, um, like, Bill talking with her. They have, like, a little dialogue. Yeah. And the first thing that we see that identifies who the fuck Bill is, and I thought this was, like, such a fucking classy touch, is uh, a monogrammed handkerchief. Yeah. That it's, says it's like Bill. Yeah, exactly. He's dabbing her, like, blood-strewn face cleaning it up a little bit and it just says bill and it's like oh this that well, motherfucker um, what was it um and just so people have some of my credentials though if you haven't figured it out by now to be fair i probably haven't told you i'm a graphic designer who worked for a bunch of years and with like super huge companies like people who own malls and shit um the poster game for this for these movies it's, like, excellent for the first one, and it's, like, they phoned it in hard for the second one. I don't know if you remember that at all. I'm going to look it up real quick. So I have the first one right in front of me. It's classic. We've got a woman in what's clearly, like, a bridal gown with her wrist. She's got it pointed downwards. Yeah, Here and, like, the sword the and then the, the handkerchief one. with Kill Bill on it. And, then and like, now I'm going to Google Kill Bill Vol 2. You want, way, to, you want to use the cool abbre- abbreviation? Yeah, um, oh yeah, yeah. Like this they so <laughs> they like the, so phoned it in, didn't they? But okay, so we're gonna contrast these two taglines. You ready for it? Yeah, We've got okay. here comes the bride. Okay, enigmatic, mysterious, kind of sexy. Um, here's the tagline for Kill Bill Volume Two: the new film by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> I you know, think, the new one. The new film. The new one. Quentin you know, Tarantino did. I yeah, think, you, you, know, you know the guy. I mean, you know like, the guy. I, I think that Kill Bill came out at a, like, it, it came out, A, curiously enough, and the reason, another reason why I picked this movie was because it's got the anime connection in it, because he, like, begged Studio IG to, like, do an animated sequence for his movie. Yeah. And... Like, he, like, showed up on their doorstep for a bunch of months until they said yes, which is amazing. That's crazy. That's great. Well, so much of this movie, um, you know, this the, the crazy thing about this movie to me, or one of the crazy things, is how planned out and put together everything feels, and yet um, how much of it is the result of, like, happenstance and good luck and yeah, just, no, like... Totally. Like, because if you look back into, like, the production of this movie, um, so much of it is, is like, super crazy that it even would have come together. Yeah, to- um, yeah, definitely. Um, like, I'm thinking specifically of, I don't know if you know the story behind the, the five, six, seven, eights, the Japanese girl band that plays during the, uh, you know, the, the crazy club scene just before everybody Yeah, I, I feel twice. like, I feel like I did at some point, and then it just slipped out of my skull. 
From what I understand, basically, Quentin Tarantino had a couple of hours um, before he had to uh, get on a plane. I think he was leaving a commercial shoot in Japan, if I remember. Either that or some kind of a meeting to discuss, like, media rights or something unrelated to this movie. Yeah. And he had a couple of hours to kill before his flight back to California or whatever. So he stopped by his favorite record store. I think it was in Osaka. It might have been Tokyo. I can't remember 100%. Don't quote me. These are the broad strokes. Don't, don't worry. We, uh, although you are very knowledgeable, we have a strict rule here. Do not quote anything you hear in, the, yes. in this podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank any you. kind don't, of fact. Yeah, we'll, we'll give my Twitter handle at the end of the show, but don't bury me in hate. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, so basically... Uh, he was at this record store and he just saw the CD as a recommendation um, at the cash register. Wasn't anything he had his eye on. Wasn't anything that like really was like crazy. It was an impulse buy, essentially. And he listened to it, fell absolutely in love with it, and was like, "I need to find a project to put these this band in, like either on the soundtrack or then eventually he had the crazy idea with Kill Bill Volume One. Well, this movie's gonna have this crazy Japanese sequence." Why not have the band show up live? Now, what 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 really gets me though is I I don't know how much you know about music rights and specifically Japanese international music rights. I'm assuming, like the rest of Japanese export law, it is insanely arcane and obscure. You would be correct. So Thank insanely you. Thank you. So, 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 so insanely uh, may not arcane. Be a smart man. <laughs> that um, there's a show called Eden of the East, and they got I don't know how the hell they did this. They got Incubus to record like an awesome opening for Eden of the East. Well, Incubus are are some chill as hell dudes from California. I feel like they were totally yeah, like, animated. Like, like, feel like wait, you want to do what for what cartoon? Okay, yeah. And, Oh, but, show as hell. Cool, we'll do it. We're Incubus. So they they got they got Incubus for the Japanese release soundtrack. They couldn't get the rights in double reverse fashion for the American version, but instead they went out and instead of doing a cover, which is what they should have done, they went yeah. out and got some random Japanese pop singer to like filter in some garbage. Oh, Jesus. Because they couldn't, like, Sony Japan wouldn't let the rights go. Oh, it's so, so like, gross. So, like, the idea that, like, Quentin Tarantino somehow got, like, the Japanese music industry to, like, give him access to, not just, like, for the soundtrack, but, for, like, a live performance of a band is probably nuts. I'm sure the story behind, like, the producer calls that had to be made by people that aren't Quentin Tarantino to make that happen are insane. Fucking nightmare. I'm, sure it's, I'm sure it's absurd. So, um, just moving, moving it along. Yeah. So then, um, from that scene, we flash to four years later to Vernita Green. Oh, Bern- I was trying to figure out if her name was Anita or Vernita. Like Vernita. Bernita, okay. Yeah, played by the inimitable Vivica A. Fox, and and she, her, we should mention that they all have code names. I think her Copperhead. name is Copperhead. Yeah, 
Yep, absolutely. The Which code is, name is Black Mamba, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're, do we want to spoil her name in this podcast or do we want to? I don't remember her name like at all. You ready for it? It's not really important. I, yet, I remember yeah. it. I, you watched it recently. Here we I go. Didn't. Spoiler warning. Beatrix Kiddo. Beatrix Kiddo is the name. That's why I don't remember it. It's super weird. Which, that is number one. Okay, Kiddo, K-I-D-D-O, is an absurd last name. Nobody yeah, has that last name. That's 100% fakey-fakey. You're asking us to suspend a lot of disbelief there, Mr. Tarantino. Um, but it, you know. at, at the point, to be fair, at the point, I do remember when it's, when it's met, when like her name is given and not bleeped out. Yes. It, that, it feels appropriate. Like, it, like they're like hanging out and like him, like, like her, like Uma Thurman, who's the actor who plays Bill? Um, hang on one second. Uh. Oh, I should know this off the top of my head, but I am drawing such a blank. I have a list of the characters in front of me, too. David Carradine. Shit. D- David, yeah, David Carradine. Rest and, in power. Rest in power, David Carradine. And their daughter are all, like, hanging out, having, like, a like a deep, moody conversation. The daughter's just kind of there. Having yeah, a deep, yeah. moody conversation well, like in, like, four. a living room. Yes. And he just like he throws it out there. It's like, oh, that's okay. Wait, what? Yeah, it's very. Weird. I guess it's time to murder. Who knows? Okay, and so here's what I took away from the Copperhead scene. Number one, great choreography between two very, very uh, hot women. Immediately setting up uh, the like one of the central conflicts that I have with this movie. What like one of the reasons why I enjoy it so much is it's a movie that both... Um, so there's, like, this idea of the male gaze in cinema, which is that, like, the camera's eye is a man's eye, and it views women as, like, objects, basically, of, of yeah. objects of attraction. And this movie very subtly, like, both plays into and subverts that idea. You know what I mean? Definitely. So, like, you have these two sexy women... They're getting into a super intense fight, and they're like they're cutting each other up. Like there's like they, blood. They, they get they get. This is a vicious fight. And then okay, so like that's kind of hot, right? Yeah. Boom! Immediately, middle of the scene, who walks in? The daughter. Nikki. Yeah. The daughter. That's like such. Which, by the way... That's such a boner killer. That's like having a little kid walk in on you, like, boning down. Like, that's like... That's exactly what that is. And it's such, like, a break in in the pace of this movie that has so far kind of been that classic Tarantino, like, boom, 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 boom. Action scene, action scene, action scene. Like, what the fuck? This woman's all fucked up. What the fuck? We're all of a sudden four years later. What and the then, fuck? All of a sudden we're fighting with knives and shit and we're flipping tables and over. And then my favorite, my favorite thing about it is like Vernita Green goes like full mom and she's like at one point she's like, Nikita! Oh, yeah. Like she gets like real sassy and you're just like, oh, oh, this is like none of, none of what I was feeling oh, and was she's okay. Got- She's got, like, a total mom bullshit story about the fucking dog making a mess in the living room that is just such a personal moment that I just love. That's such, like, a 
your mom doesn't want to tell you what really happened, so she fucking blames your dog and shit. But it That's also, like, like it also, like, your mom also never really wanted you to have a dog, but your dad showed up with a dog. Yeah. And have a dog. Yeah, because you had been begging for one. Yep, yeah. yep. That's 100%. It. it feels very, like, you know that situation. Like, like you've like, seen it at like, your friend's house. You're writing, you're writing like the scene where they have to fight about the dog and like muffled tones in the other room. After uh-huh. like, honey, can I talk to you for a second? Oh yeah, no, that's totally that's their household too. Like okay, and then also I love, um, I love already in the movie where uh, front and central this movie plays with the idea of her daughter being dead, maybe. And the bride not knowing. Yeah, that that's like that's like um, a definite. Yeah, that's a definite central thing. Because the they they jump from. Um, I, will, I will say, like talking about this movie is a little hard, only because the timeline. If, oh, it's it, so screwy it, on purpose. It, for the for the second movie, it's not as screwy. For the second movie, it's more traditional. But for the first movie, it's like super screwy. Like I think you go from. The opening scene which we talked about to the Vernita Green thing, and then they jump back yeah. to her in the hospital. Yeah. And then they jump, like, they, like, jump yeah, they almost jump sideways. Half, from that scene, they jump to the one that you were talking about a minute ago, four and a half years earlier, where it's the sheriff, the honky-tonk sheriff, who um, is going to go investigate the aftermath. Okay, yeah. That, of like, the first scene of the movie. I feel so like this... we're all that's how screwy. We we've just gone through a whole like knife fight where someone where first of all, let's finish up that scene real quick. Yeah. So Vernita Green pulls a gun that's but, hidden in a cereal box out of nowhere. Why is she hiding guns in cereal boxes with the kid? She used to be an assassin, dog. Yeah, but like, she makes was... okay. That mom makes the breakfast in that household. That child has never worked a cereal box in their life. Okay. Okay. Nikki, Nikki, the little girl, uh, has never tilted a cereal box past forty-five degrees. Her mother snatched it out of her hand and then tilted it ninety to get the cereal out. But um, but that like... being said, um, the bride throws a knife at Bernita's chest and kills her. And then she has a little dialogue with Nikki, which I want to just address really quickly. I just feel so bad for this little girl. I feel so, so bad for this little fucking four-year-old. Whose mom is dead in the kitchen. You know what's weird? What's weird? The, like, the dialogue that she has. I, because I I watch, obviously, a lot of anime. Hence the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happens across, like, so much revenge fantasy stuff like eventually somebody inevitably kills somebody's parents and the kid finds out and they always have a version of the same conversation of like if you feel the need to find me yeah come find me like and they just like walk off yeah that feels like it could be the beginning like they could probably make an anime about nikki now i i'm not sure it's been okay, so it's been thirteen years. She would be turning seventeen. Yeah, and I, I, I would, I would bet if they were going to do anything with that character, they would want her not to be jailbait. They would want to, like, at least. Yeah. Avoid that. Although, hey. although, uh, who knows? 
in the anime market, I mean, you you know, I mean, listen, (gasps) the Japanese theory seems to be if there could be hypothetical grass on an animated field. True. That's all I'm saying. But, you know, which is actually, you know, in the future, that's something I want to learn more about um, anime as well through this podcast. I feel like that's a great opportunity. Yeah, I've, 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 I've. I will go Eevee on you. I will not send you down the go. path of terrible. But um, but I think this is a great movie to to introduce the idea on because we do have a crazy animated sequence that we're going to get to. Yeah, eventually we will get to that. So I'm gonna, that like, I'm gonna skip past the honky tonk sheriff because I don't really have a whole lot of notes about that sequence. You I, you know, I like got some fun music. It's got some fun dialogue. I, I like the fact that they. And this is really hard to do, and um, most filmmakers would have a problem with this, but filmmakers who are super um, referential, like Quentin Tarantino, like George Lucas also, yeah, um, do this really well. It's like, he was able to shift, he's able to shift, like, through multiple motifs, not so much through the second movie, so the second movie it's like, pure like, American West kind of Americana feeling, but through, like, the first movie, you go from, like, essentially a bridal party yeah, to, like, suburban life to, like, the middle of fucking nowhere, like, hospital, like, male, creepy male nurse charging to have sex with the, like, passed out, yeah, just that really raw, like aggressive. really fucked up. Like you, you know, this is like a hospital that's down on its luck in Detroit, and nobody paying attention, kind of shit. Well, I feel like I feel like that's the this is the closest that Quentin Tarantino has ever come to exposing like that underbelly. So, like Pulp Fiction, you know, it's a very urban underbelly. Yeah, it. it you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. like Jules. Um, uh, 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 Travolta's character in that movie <laughs> is from Amsterdam. He's fucking yeah. like a jet setter. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he's very urbane. Buck, Buck who likes to fuck has never left his home county. <laughs> Bu- you know Buck what I mean? Buck who likes to fuck, like just keeps doing this to every like moderately hot com- comatose patient that comes into the. Oh. Okay, like, when the bride came into that hospital, it was the making of Buck Who Likes to Fuck's yep, Life. absolutely. That, this, this nine, nine and a half, ten, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. easily a ten. Uma Thurman, okay. Let's also address the fact that Kill Bill is essentially, like, a two-movie-long love letter that Quentin Tarantino wrote to Uma Thurman's feet. <laughs> I never even thought about that. But you're totally right. And what is it? Didn't she break her ankle in one of these movies? Oh, I'm imagining that. I don't know. I'm gonna look at the trivia for this movie real quick. I'm gonna try. Okay, let's let's get technical here. We're gonna do some intense Google chroming here, folks. Uh, function fine. Function ankle. We're gonna look on the facts. If she did, it wasn't in this movie. I think it might have been in two. It, I could definitely see the intense stunts into resulting in a broken ankle. 
Because also, real quick, let me just Google Uma Thurman's stats real quick. This woman has some unusual body proportions. Number yes. one, she's a woman who's five foot eleven. Yeah, that's, that's she's five foot eleven. Big for any for any level of people. I want to say her feet are might be as long as mine. She might have size twelves. She might have oh, a man size twelve. Okay. Because when that you makes- see her feet up close, they're super long, which. Uh, Quentin Tarantino supposedly has some issues with feet. I, well, not I, issues. He has some uh, affections for feet, let's say. I super, like, I, I'm in my head, so you know, like, the supercuts that people yeah. do on YouTube? Like, I want somebody to, like, supercut, like, a love letter to Uma Thurman's feet. I want, in the same way that people have supercut Samuel Jackson saying motherfucker 900 times in a row. Maybe, what... If you could get both and just superimpose one on top of the other, that would be great. That's the video that I want to see. That's way more like that Tim and Eric style. Um, um, but, okay, so we have the whole scene where uh, where they re-reference uh, her being a spitter, which is a real thing, by the yeah, way. No, no, yeah, I know. It's like, like That's a real medical some, thing that's not made some up. Some people in coma just spit for no fucking reason. The next joke that uh, that I wanted to kind of like, or the next thing that I kind of wanted to to address a little bit, is okay. So she, um, you know, Buck who likes to fuck is hiring out her body while she's comatose. Yeah. So she kills two dudes real quick. She gets the what keys. What by to biting the... out their tongue? Yeah, that's intense. <laughs> that's some fucked up shit. That's a lot of blood for the it's first. Like... Like, like she got like a blood bib by like the like end of that whole sequence. Oh yeah. Um. The, uh, but then the next thing is she makes it out to the pussy wagon, right? By the way, Which if is you amazing. Want, if you want a really fun time, go look up. You can look up. Somebody made an icon set. No, I know. There's a PSD font, isn't there? Of I the know. pussy wagon. I'm font. not entirely sure that it's. A font, but I know there's an icon set you can get, and one of the icons is just the keychain for the pussy wagon. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, which, by the way, I wanted to say, the font on the pussy wagon, I want, I want to say, felt dated to me at 13. It has not aged well. It's still hilarious. The joke still works. <laughs> But the font was a corny choice. Well, the, but like, if you think about Buck who likes to fuck, he would like make that, a corny choice. He would make a corny choice, and like his whole the pussy wagon is basically it's not as bad as um what's his face? Oh, this is a really this is a really bad romantic comedy with um get a name. But he basically the guy plays this guy plays like a he's supposed to be giving romantic advice, but he's a really like a, he's an asshole of a dude, and he refers to his car as this Davin cabin. Oh shit! Nope, nope. I don't have it. I don't have it. <laughs> but Sorry. um, he um, like if you think about what a guy like that would think was cool and sexy, it's definitely like. Like, 70s throwback porn, basically. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, like it that, sounds incredibly that, that, familiar, but I can't, re- I can't quite place it. Yeah, I, um, I 
with um not Michael. Oh, that's gonna drive me nuts. I'm gonna have to look up that quote later. That's okay. Maybe. But um, but so she's in the pussy wagon, and then uh, she has to wiggle her big toe, which is the start of the love letter to her feet. Yeah, definitely. Um, so she's got to wiggle her big toe. And then the thing that I wanted to comment on with this scene real quick is, um, it says on screen 13 hours later. So, um, before like, like, she pops up on screen, like ready to get to Vernita Green's house. So it took her 13 hours. And what I want to propose to you is that we ask Quentin Tarantino and Uma Thurman in a handwritten letter what the workout regimen is for like getting your body prepped for further assassination after being comatose for like four years. Um, like wh- how you get better in 13 hours, because I feel like that's a workout regimen that we could sell to some CrossFit people and make some fucking money. I feel like we could just like be like, well, you know, Paul Ryan, you could do this for the rest of your life and leave us alone. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. You fucking weirdo. Fucking frogman. So, oh, Jesus. Um, so, uh, then at that point, um, basically, she wakes from her four and a half year, her four year coma, and then she kills the hospital worker, hospital worker named Buck, um, teaches herself to walk again, and she resolves to kill Bill and all four members of the Deadly Viper assassination squad. Um, while, but she resolves. She resolves to do that while she's like getting her feet working. Yeah, getting her feet working. And that's where you slip into what is really like the main part of this movie. Well, the, Vernita Green. Actually, this is the part that always fucks me up. So it's not Vernita Green that she goes to kill first. It's first she drives to the airport and gets on a plane. To go to fucking Japan. Yeah, to that's the part the that always shit trips out of me Lou. up. Yes, that's why we always get fucked up talking about this movie is because it's the second part first and then the first part second yeah anyway so now that we have that straight now we're up to the oren ishii introduction which is where i feel like we're going to get into some meaty convo vis-a-vis the backstory because i feel like you're going to know a lot more about it i just basically i have the wikipedia page in front of me i'm looking at production ig I'm seeing that they made Ghost in the Shell, which I have seen. You're I have like not seen the thing, last vampire. But it's not clicking together. Yeah. Quite. I've seen okay. Ghost in the Shell. I want to know more about this anime sequence because it's fucking intense. It's fucking badass. One it thing was... I want to say real quick. Uh, I love when Oren Ishii, they do flashback pictures of her. It's only in still pictures. But at one point she has like, um, the Japanese version of the Rachel haircut. Oh, the like during her assassin's career. Yeah, like down. Whoop. You're like, whoop. Well, um. Yeah. So what I would probably say is that this whole because it's, in terms of animation, I think it's like ten minutes of animation and something like a ten thousand dollars or something. Um. Okay. Uh, do you want to... Um, okay, so here are the facts that I have in front of me. The okay. anime scenes covering Oren Ishii's backstory. It was directed by a gentleman by the name of... Does this name sound familiar? Kazutu, Kazuto, excuse me. Kazuto. Nakazawa. 
No, we did not. Like, I can't. I could not tell you another thing he directed. Okay. Do you want to hear some other credits? Yes, please. Let me see. So uh, he also goes by the pseudonym Takeshi Suji. Less vague, but Parasite Dolls. Okay. The Moon Drive segment of Genius Party Beyond. Um, he designed characters for Ashida no Naja okay. and Samurai Champloo. Okay. Okay. But so she Samurai... also served as the animation director. Okay. So just so you know, Samurai Champloo is like considered to be the far, like the Far East version of Cowboy Bebop. Okay. It, it's okay. Like, it, 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 like if if Cowboy Bebop is Western is a Japanese anime inspired space western with jazz themes. Uh, samurai Champloo is literally like an old school Japanese samurai, like popcorn samurai flick. Yeah. Set to like hip hop ba backing. That's what I'm seeing. This sounds badass. I want to watch this series at some point. So maybe I think we, you, could... I, I, we, we could probably find it on. Um, What's it called? Um, Crunchyroll. I, I think it's on. I think it's on Netflix. Oh really? Oh shit! That would be even better. I already have oh, a Netflix account. I, I I try to work with what in people have what within what people have, and if they don't, I'm just like here are logins. We'll go, go over our we'll go over our service overlap. So okay. we'll, we'll go over that at a later time. But okay, so up after that, we have the Oren Ishii sequence. Lot of lot of moral quandaries in this, huh? Lot of issues brought up. Transnationalism. Um, th uh, this, pedophilia. This is actually pretty like historically based. Because so maybe yeah, give me some of that background. Typically, just so you, just so you know, um, gangsters in Japan are many times not Japanese born. They're usually Korean. Okay. And Japan as a that culture... That makes sense because it's kind of like a criminal undercast, right? Yeah, yeah. And Japan as a culture is super racist. Like, super racist. Yeah, no, racist. I'm very well aware of that. <laughs> like, I'm very, very well of that. Really racist. <laughs> I saw... Amazing. Um, I've seen... Uh, I don't know if you've seen this video as well, but I think the guy is in Japan, and it's like a super tall black guy. Right, and yeah. he's it's during the winter time, and he so he's covered head to toe, you know, mittens, uh, hood over his head, like the whole yeah. nine yards. And he's wearing an Iron Man mask, and he gets right up in people's faces with the Iron Man mask on, right? And yeah. they're acting like I'm not bothered by this. You're just a weirdo, whatever. And like, then he like lifts the Iron Man mask and reveals that he's an African American or an African gentleman, a gentleman of African descent. I don't want to yeah. assume. No. Uh, and he reveals that, and they freak the fuck out. Like, what the fuck? They like, yeah, no, they act like like you or I would act if someone like took off like a Guy Fox mask and revealed themselves to be H.R. Giger's the the alien. <laughs> okay, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, um, but so. And in particular, there's all sorts of weird rules about the army. Like when she says she's a Jap, she's a half. She's a, I think she said she's 
half half Chinese, American, half Chinese, ha- half American, half Chinese, which basically means that her fa- the backstory to like her childhood would probably be something like this: her father was an American Army post in like the Okinawa branch. Yeah, the uh, the American Defense the, the Force, American which has defense. been traditionally there since we dropped bombs on them that we destroyed know, we, two we, cities. We, we, we fucked them back to the Stone Age, basically. Yeah, um, you know, which we can we can debate the morality of that, you know. <laughs> um, but the so in all likelihood, he fucked some Chinese hookers. You probably fucked some Chinese hookers. Sure, why not? Um, he and or the well, Chinese because ho- also isn't it like a like brothels are not necessarily taboo in Japanese culture, but but sex between Japanese people and non-Japanese people is very taboo. Like love yes, parlors and- exist, but you or I might not be like exactly welcome in them to sample yes no. where. Yes and no. I mean, like, like sex, sex between like me and a Japanese woman, or you and a Japanese woman in Japan wouldn't be taboo. The reason why they keep foreigners out of like love, love hotels, love hotels and love parlors, which bizarrely enough, there are agencies you can go to and be like, I want to see these things about Japan. Where who will let me in? Yeah, it's because they're all run You're by the mob, it. and yeah. like. Normal Japanese people would be like, yo, I don't want to get my legs broken tonight. Let's not do this. But like, yeah. they're, they're rightfully worried about, like, just, like, random foreigners coming in and being like, man, this is definitely sex slavery. Like, I should go with the cops. Because the cops will ignore it as long as they don't, aren't forced to do something about it, basically. As long as they can turn a blind eye. It's like a Have brown you- paper bag in a public park. Have you read um have you read Tokyo Vice? Yeah, I have actually. I well I've listened to it as an audiobook. Yeah, I I I've read While it working. and listened to it. But um it's basically the whole like front end of Tokyo Vice is basically okay, this is how Jack, Japanese sex sex industry continued to exist. It's because the cops basically ignore it until they literally can't ignore it anymore. Yeah. And the reason they don't let foreigners in to those places is basically because they'll tattle. Yeah. But, um, so, like, a Japanese, uh, American serviceman probably fucked a Chinese hooker, got her pregnant. They had the kid. The serviceman or the mother probably had gambling debt. Yeah. I would bet it's the mother... I mean, sure, her, we can read like, we can read into the text well, a little I, bit. Why I, not? I mean, I would bet it's the mother who was working as a hooker because of her family previous debt, because that's the thing they do all the time. Yeah, so oh yeah. Say, like they'll grand, say like, like your father owed us a lot of money, you're gonna work it out for us with your body. Yeah, and also isn't like isn't that one of the main ways that like Im- illegal immigration is handled into Japan? Like people looking for illicit. Oh, yeah. Work. yeah, I mean that would be, they would handle that. That transportation process would be handled through yakuza, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> like uh, like coyotes with Mexico. Yeah, and 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 that is 
funnily enough, like, the second chunk of, like, the second big chunk of Tokyo Vice deals with all of that stuff, deals with, like, sex slavery and sex tourism and all that, like, weird shit. Like, have you ever seen The, uh, the Wire? I've not, I've actually not seen The Wire, much to my shame, more and more. Oh, that's okay, that's okay. You can catch up on it on HBO Go. Um, but, um, the second season of The Wire deals with, uh, like, basically sex trafficking. Okay, and, yeah. And, like, one of the subplots of the second season is there's a, uh, a shipping container full of hookers where their oxygen pipe gets crushed. Oh, Nice. Yeah, so I'm sure nice. stuff like that happens from time to time on Japanese ports. I'm sure shit like that happens. Oh yeah, I mean definitely. There's um there's another there's another fun live action, um Japanese movie called I think it's called The Returner. It was made in like 2002 or something. I'm gonna take notes of some of the stuff <laughs> that we're uh... and um, I think it's called The Returner. And basically, you come in. This is a movie, I think, on the triads, basically doing some sort of, like, ship fuckery with a crate full of, basically, hookers to be. Yeah, uh, not, not sexy ladies just yet, but, like, sexy ladies once they get in, like, the designated housing area kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um... And one of the ways they... That's one of the ways they keep the women there is they... Get them there, they say, okay, you can work and you can stop whenever you want, and then they take their passports so they can't leave. Yeah. And so eventually they overstay their visas so they can't go to the cops, and, but they also don't have their passports so they can't go to an embassy, and so they're just straight fucked. Yeah. Um, literally and figuratively. But, so, Oren's parents were probably some combination of that, which led to the mafia, you know, murdering them. Yeah, and then they make a huge issue of it at the, um, uh, at the huge, um, meeting. So, basically, uh, they introduce some of the members of Oren's gang, including the, um, the sexy schoolgirl whose name, uh, is Gogo Yubari. Gogo Yubari. So, they introduce Gogo Yubari, and they have the great penetration gag. Oh, no, it is I. Who have penetrated you? Yeah, yeah. Which is amazing. Um, but then they have, um, then they flash from that scene basically into the conference where Oren Ishii is taking over all the yakuza in Japan um, at a Blade Runner conference table. Yep. Um, while they're having sushi, and then uh, Boss Tanaka, who I have a note about him here that just says Boss Tanaka is such a little butthurt dude. <laughs> it, 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 no, you're not wrong. He really, he's so butthurt about her being half American, half Chinese, and, like, just speaking Japanese, and he has such a problem with her well, being also, did, boss. like, a, did, like, a, something that happens in Japanese society and happens more and more in American society, because, you know, we aren't capitalist enough, I guess, is they ascribe, like, like, business-level titles to everything. Yeah. And it's supposed to be, like, a certain way people rise up the ladder, I think. Not only was he butthurt that she was Jap she was ha half Chinese, half American. Like, not, yeah. even, not even Japanese. 
but that he was basically, she was basically skipping over him in promotion order. Yeah. Um. Which, if you want another great demonstration of that, and you can listen to this on Audible, um, go uh, listen to or read The United States of Japan, and then, you know, suffer from crippling depression at the end of that book. Oofa doofa. Sounds like a sounds like a, a light midnight read. Yeah, light, light light midnight read of just like, oh well, that didn't go well for anybody. Time so then, so then here's something that I noticed real quick um, yeah. during this whole exchange um, that I wanted to just take note of real quick, um, which is I feel like this was a very smart move on the part of Quentin Tarantino as both a filmmaker and an editor, which is. So we have this whole long period where you have the anime sequence that introduces Oren Ishii's rise to power, like her murdering the original boss that killed her parents, you know, her revenge story. That's all tied up in a neat little bow. You have this little scene that introduces her gang, and all this is subtitled, all of it. And then you have a little bit more during the meeting that's subtitled, and then real quick, in the middle of the meeting, boom, right when the decisive point happens after the tension of her having to go murder boss Tanaka at the dinner table. Like, Boom. Straight up Quentin onto Tarantino. the dinner table. <clears throat> yeah. Like she clears the fucking table, slices this dude's fucking dome right in two. And then all of a sudden Quentin Tarantino says, fuck these subtitles. We're going into English for a quick five minutes. We're going to give my American audience a fucking break with these subtitles. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was, um, no, I, I'm, I. That was smart pacing. Totally smart pacing. It was totally smart pacing because most, I mean, as an anime fan, I am used to subtitles. Yeah, absolutely. Usually only with the backing track of Japanese or something that sounds like Japanese, like, Spanish and subtitles fucks me up. Like, I can't yeah. do it. <laughs> Same yeah. thing with French. I'm just like, what? To English, yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I'm on the opposite end a little bit. I'm not bothered by subtitles uh, from any language just because I love European cinema. Uh, I, I, like, when I was in college, I studied post-war European cinema. Okay. So subtitles don't bother me. And then the other thing is, is I also love um, kung fu movies. Oh and, yeah, and a lot of and a lot of Japanese gangster movies from the '60s and '70s. So, like with Asian cinema, I'm also kind of able to hang in there. I don't really care. I don't notice subtitles. No, no, I, I only know I only notice because and this is gonna sound weird. In because I've watched so much of it and I know all the accents and stuff. Yeah. I when when I'm reading a subtitle and it's Japanese, I hear that voice in my head saying those words. Yeah, and if it switches over to French, it's like, huh? Who are any of these people? I don't know who anyone in this movie is now. Like, yeah, exactly. It becomes harder for you to separate um, characters because you're not yeah. working so much off of like specific voice types. Let's say, yeah. yeah. Um, and what were they gonna say? Um, the the switch to English was really good. I like that they. That for the most part, the Japanese sequences after the dinner table sequence. Yeah. You don't really need to know what they're saying. 
you just need to know that person's gonna die, that person's not gonna die, that person's gonna die, kind of thing. Oh, and yeah, there's a lot of, um, so in screenwriting, they have like a phrase that I'm sure you're familiar with, but maybe not everybody in the audience is, and that is, uh, show, don't tell. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of showing, don't telling going on. Um, like, uh, there's one, I have another note after the, um, after that one, uh, which by the way, my note for that little subtitle thing was smart subtitle break during Oren Ishii's multicultural color of Benetton's ad. (laughs) That's right. So just where she's real quick, she's talking about how like, you know, if you have problems, come to me, but don't fucking bring up the fact that I'm half Chinese, half American, that whole thing. Anyway, um, so then, uh, Charlie Brown. Oh, but, but we're, we're missing a crucial character here. The one missing? we should all truly be ashamed of not feeling bad for. The interp- the French interpreter lady. Oh, yeah, where she's being stalked through the streets by the bride while she's <laughs> like on she her fucking motorcycle in her badass mark jumpsuit. Like, fucking hunted down for really no reason other than she's, like, unfortunate enough to be, like... Associated, associated. with Oren Which, by the way, real quick, let's just, uh, just because it, it deserves mentioning, let's just see real quick um, what Oren's um, fucking snake name was, because I forget it at the moment. Um, Cottonmouth, I think it was. I think so. No, Cottonmouth was Vernita Green. Oh, wait, no, Cottonmouth is Oren Ishii. Copperhead yep. is Vernita Green. There we go. You nailed it. Nailed Don't it ask on me the why that, like, buddy. logged in my head. It just did. My apologies for doubting you. No, it's um, okay. D- doubt me all you want. I'll be wrong, so, I'll be wrong on both <laughs> So real quick, um, we, got, uh, we got Charlie Brown and his wife. I want to mention them real quick. Yeah. Uh, they, 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 have a great, they have a great throwaway line um, where the wife is saying, haven't you heard about the Tanaka gang? And he goes, oh, no, I haven't heard. But he's definitely fucking heard. He knows who these people are. Um, and his wife goes, you're going to get your head chopped off. And he, his line back to her is, oh, no, I don't want that. that that's like that's a really, like, that there's very, a tone of business. anime to me. Well, there's, there's also this like, this, like, unavoidable tone of business. Of dealing with difficult people in like difficult situations at like work. Like you work retail. Yeah, like, like if you work retail, you're like, like oh, I, I guess if that happens, it happens. But I'd really like it not to today. Damn it. Um. Also, well, can I can I real quick? Uh, I want to tell you like one of the crazier stories that I have from working retail. Okay. It's real quick. So I used to work at uh, bicycle stores uh, yeah. growing up. Which you you know, and I'll I'll share with the audience real quick. I worked, I worked at a bicycle store for a brief summer. That was about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so at the first bike bicycle store that I ever worked at, um, there was a a client that we had who didn't actually come in for bicycle stuff. He did uh track racing, okay, like with the cart ponies. Okay. Not like the ponies that you ride on, the cart ponies. Yeah. Um, so like he used to do that and you the training wheels are basically these wheels that are set up with bicycle tires. 
Okay. So he used to get these really expensive road bike tires that are like very technical and he used to, it's a, it's a real hassle to get them installed because they're tubeless tires. Okay, um, yeah. But so basically, um, this one time he was picking up a set of four wheels and this is, let's say, um, a dignified businessman of the Italian American persuasion. Okay. <laughs> And okay. I hand over these four wheels that have four brand new, like gorgeous hundred dollar tires. So this is like a four hundred dollar like transaction without labor, which we then charged like twenty or thirty dollars a tire for. So big, big expensive bill. I'm literally just handing him the wheels. He handed me a hundred dollar tip. Yeah. So that's just, it. you know, just throwing that out there. That's, that, like, my and, and, and experience like, in this kind of world. Oftentimes in, like, in Japan specifically, like, the, like the, 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 the mafia has a weird, like, relationship to the public. They have been known to help. Like, like during yeah. the tsunami, they helped a lot, like, getting people out of bad places with, like, we're not going to bill you for this one, guys, because it's just, like, national pride and shit. But, and they also, like, they own, like, entertainment companies and shit. Huge and construction whole, firms. The, well, Huge construction firms, the, too, they right? They own, not only construction firms, but there's a, um, and they mentioned that they meant they spend, like, I think a paragraph on this in Tokyo Vice. They are what called corporate blood brothers who work in, like, serious have serious positions in, like, Fortune major national industries. major national corporations, and they still pay their due to, like, the head office, or, like, the main branch of the family or whatever. So, like, they're kind of everywhere, but they're also, like... It's hard to pin them down in It's society. hard to pin them down, and, like, it's, it's also not hard to not interact with them. Like, they're hard to miss, because... What, what we would, what at least I or many people would deduce as being super well dressed in yeah. Japan, basically just means you're connected. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like all the like the floral shirts and fancy clothes I wear all the time. Oh I, yeah. I I opened I've opened up one of those for Christmas in front of a friend of mine from college who she's Japanese and she literally looked at me and went like, "Oh, Yakuza shirt." I'm like, "Okay." That's a thing that Thanks. I forgot about. Cool. Just trying to look Whatever. nice. Thanks. Cool. Oh. Um, so the, then this is the point where trying to describe the plot of the movie kind of falls to shit until the last 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because yeah, this is just the fight with the crazy 88. I have a couple of notes that real quick that I think we can just kind of breeze through yeah. um, real quick. Um, so... There's a, a Wilhelm scream. Do you know what that is? Like what a Wilhelm scream is? Uh, it's a it's a very specific like film scream. If I if I play something on YouTube, is it going to get picked up on the Skype call? Do you think? Uh, yeah, it should. Okay, so, so it's a very recognizable audio clip that okay. film editors and people who are really into like film history love to reference in their films. I'm going to play a little bit of a compilation and I'm going to read some titles for you. This is like three minutes long, okay. but, um, okay. 
Okay, so this is the first one. It's from a movie called The Charge at Father River in 1953. A guy gets shot with an arrow. Did you just hear that? No. Okay. Um, here, I'm going to send you the link. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll play it on my end. Yeah, here. Um, um, in the Skype window, where can I do that? Uh, you should be able to... Oh, if you if you look under um, if you Here, look I'm under your you own picture, if if you look under your own picture, on the Skype window, you'll see a little talk bubble. Oh, okay. And you just click that, and it'll open up the side. Here, I'll actually send you something so you get something. Okay. There you go. Oh, whoops. Okay, hang on. Send me something else real quick. Oh wait, here. Now I got it. There we go. Paste. And I just sent you the link. Okay. Okay. Um, let me play this. And just so you know, I, 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 I edit big things out, but like stuff like this. Oh yeah, we'll just edit. I, I, I'll, I'll just keep in because it'll be a bitch to find. Who cares? Um, but so basically, if you watch it, you're going to see the first instance of it. And when you hear it, um, you're going to recognize it. And yeah. then you're going to see it kept on getting reused in all these movies in the 50s. And so now directors love to fucking use it at random points in movies to just be like, oh, this is like a clever shout out. Yeah, definitely. Um, like you see it's in Star Wars A New Hope, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, a bunch of George Lucas movies use it. Um, oh, I think I know you... Is it the same screen that's from Raiders of the Lost Ark went right before the Nazi mouse? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. So, so that's it, called... It was, uh, it, it was uh, like, dude holding the sword up, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. That... Ah! Oh, that's also um, supposed so... to be like a samurai warrior fail screen. Yeah, exactly, and that's, um, so that's, there's one of those at about, uh, one hour and 24 minutes, if people are following along with the movie at all. Okay, yeah. Um, um then, then the lights go out, and we have a totally blacklit sequence, which is just fucking gnarly. It's so that, sick. um, and I think this movie came out after I'm turning off my browser, because it will literally crash Skype. That's okay. That's how, that's how old my computer is. Oofa doofa. Um... The they have a lot of like trippy kind of sequences like that in old samurai movies. Um, yeah, like lots of times the end of a samurai movie will be like some sort of like kind of almost dream esque sequence. Like I don't know if you've seen Zadoichi's a Blind Samurai. I think it came yep, out. I have seen that. Did you remember the end of that movie when he yes. really just dies in the ocean? It's just this like Technicolor swimming sequence. No, it's so crazy. Uh, that that's not, from what I understand, not uncommon of old samurai movies to have or, like um, some section of that. One that you might want to check out: uh, the movie Ran ends with a um, like the head of a family basically going insane, and there's a lot of like weird, trippy like visual effects that go along with him like finally losing his mind. So then yeah. uh, after that. Um, my next note is uh, Hatchet Head, where uh, the guy with the Kato mask, who's initially introduced, gets the uh, the hatchet to the face. Yep. So sick. So, so sick. 
That's immediately followed up with a decapitation. Yeah, there's the, the lots of the lots of like. I do you know how they do this the the blood effect in this movie? Like, do you know how they like physically do that? Do they want do they wire like, uh, or is it just added in after the like? I think it's I think a lot of it broken faucet of blood. At this point, a lot of it would have been finally green screen, but then also a fair amount of it. Also, decapitations in film before that point were generally done with just quick cuts, which this movie definitely does for its decapitation. There's a quick cut back to a guy with no head and just it's probably a body prosthetic that they ripped up to fall, essentially, and then had um, just straight blood pumps squirt blood out of the neck. Yeah. um, And just so everybody knows... um, we did skip over the sequence with uh, the samurai sword maker dude. Oh, yeah, we did go over that a little we did bit. Just, like, I just realized it because I was thinking, like, it, the same way they have fake glass in movies and the same way they have fake, like, fake bullets and shit in movies, I, I actually have one sitting up next to my bed. They're basically samurai swords are made and then they're sharpened. Yeah. So so if you and they use it for uh, practice, like actual samurai fighting, which is called iaido. It's just a non. It's not a sharp blade. I mean, only the only like the very tip of it is like all you can basically do with it is use it for fondue or run somebody through if you've really tried hard. Yeah. But it is like completely dulled. So like. They are real swords they're using in this, but they're like, there's no edge to them. So it's not, it's not like they're like, walk, they just like, here, Uma Thurman, here's an actual samurai sword. Don't die. Yeah. Because those things are heavy, man. Oh, I'm sure. It's a lot of steel that you're carrying. Well, even if it like, I think the one I have is like some sort of like carbon something. Um, yeah. but it, like, they're, they're, like, it's not so much that they're heavy, it's that they are actually unwieldy, like, because they're meant to, like, cleave They're a hacking shit. weapon. Yeah. So yeah. the, um, the boss of the Crazy 88 gets the hatchet to his face, and then I think, isn't that where they introduce Gogo? Oh, no, she comes out, like, towards the very end, right yeah. before that, right before Gogo comes out. There's a decapitation. Then there's um, her doing a chicken fight where uh, I don't know if you ever saw this at pool parties in suburban New Jersey, but where like a girlfriend would get in front, uh, get on top of a guy's shoulders and and then fight with another girl in a pool. So she basically does the samurai sword equivalent of that for a while and just is hacking off arms and legs and then finally kills the guy that she's riding. Um, and then right after that, um, you've got, um, uh, Dozy Doe where she basically, she has one guy as a human shield and she swings him around a whole bunch and, and then cuts up the rest of the crazy 88. And then it seems like it's just her and Oren. Yep. And, then and they, they have up. a big, they have a big talky talk. It's basically where, like. You, you you tried to fucking kill me, and you fucked me over, and you killed my kid. Yeah, and not only that, be. but you fucked up because you should have killed me when you could have. Yeah, 
So now I'm here to straight murder you. So do you have it? And then she literally says, so do you have anyone else that I need to murder before I get to kill you? Yeah. And that's when Gogo comes out. That's, yeah, that's when Gogo comes out. And boy, does Gogo come out ready to fuck shit up with her fucking flail. Now, is, that, is that just a mace or is it a, actually no, called that's a flail? A, okay, so here's an important distinction that the audience needs to learn about. A mace is any weapon that is a pole that ends in a solid head. Okay. Okay. So, like anything that ends in like a heavy head that you that, that then creates momentum for you to swing, you know, whether it's spiked or whether it's just like a solid weight or however you're going to do it. Yeah. A flail is what Oren Ishii was using, that's, which that, is that's any weapon with a stick that ends in a chain and then has a weight on the end of that. And just so you know, there is a traditional ninja weapon. Was like essentially like you know those like pound weights used to use in like sixth grade science class. Yeah, yeah. It's on like a, uh, that on like a really you thin mean on chain. A, you mean when I used to use a triple beam before I was a cocaine dealer? <laughs> yep, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. It's like that on on the end on one end of like a really small chain. I think it's a sickle on the other side. Yes, and you just hundred percent shoot it forward and like use that to pull somebody and like. Take a little I, off the top. I have seen that. And from what I understand, most ninja weapons are based on traditional farming implements, right? Like stuff that people well, yeah, take away was, in peacetime. That was the class that basically was drawn from because you can't draw from you couldn't draw from the samurai. Yeah. So here's my thing. Let's try and think of some crops that you could harvest with this traditional farming implement um fucking skulls <laughs> fucking skulls yep yeah pretty much right like sternums like basically yeah basically whole human bodies yeah just whole body parts maybe it was for cattle murder yeah, fair totally fair i could see it being used for cattle murder well I, um, I, I, at some point i will also say and i don't know as someone who has obviously shopped for samurai swords. <laughs> uh-huh. You've gone ahead and made that eBay purchase before. Like, like, I, 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 didn't, I didn't do eBay. I did Amazon because I wanted to make sure I got the thing. Like, if I'm going to make this stupid-ass purchase for, like, 40 bucks, I'm going to get the damn thing. Yeah, you don't want to you, you just get a picture of a samurai sword and a note that says you should have known better. <laughs> like, you really thought we were going to ship this through the internet? Oh. Yeah. At some point, I feel like Amazon got into the ninja weapon. I was like, no, but what if these were real fucked up? <laughs> <laughs> because, like, the, the, the thing I described with, with the sickle on one end and the weight on the other is one yeah. thing. And then there's what Gogo has, which is literally just, like, a mace head... On a chain, and at some point, she like press does a little button press, and like a saw blade comes out of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it she gets a rotating number of spikes that eject from the ball itself. Yeah. I'm looking at a um, 
I'm looking at a Google Images image uh, that has been brought to us by Pinterest. Your users might want to might want to know about that. Pinterest brought us an image of this. So yeah, it comes out first with spikes, but then it also can convert into a saw blade, like yeah. a rotating saw blade. Um, again, I'm just trying to imagine what product this uh, this tool could be used to harvest. And the only thing I'm coming up with is fucking necks. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying is at some point, it's like there was totally a point at which, you know, everything was just some kind of modified farming instrument. But then, like, it just once Amazon was around, and, like, people just started getting real nefarious and were like, nope, like, what if we just put a saw blade in there and, like, really got people, like, stuff for their money? Now, I don't know how, how big your audience is, and, and I don't know what their skill set is, but I'm going to hope that there's someone out there who can mod Stardew Valley for me so that it uses all ninja weapons. <laughs> You've all been infected by the, Valley. by the virus of, of Star, Stardew Valley? Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, and then um, one more note that I had about the fight sequence, and then I think we can kind of wrap it up with the, with the final scene of the movie a yeah. little bit and, and go over that a little bit as well. So um, my last note for the fight sequence a lot of sexual overtones with the little boy spanking there, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I Just getting back to the subject of this being a two-movie-long love letter to Uma Thurman and her feet. A <laughs> lot, a lot of Quentin Tarantino sexuality being explored in that spanking scene, I feel like. With, let's, let's keep it in perspective, with the sword... Not even like open palm. Broad sword. sword. The, broad, the like... broad section of the samurai sword. And that's how Tori... Here's the thing. Like, in that scene... Okay, so that young man is like, what? Let's say 16, 17? Yeah, somewhere he's... in there, right? 15, 16, 17? He's just been spanked with a Hattori Hanzo blade. <laughs> that's a difficult fetish to live with. Like, like oh, fuck. That's no. a difficult, like, he's going to have a hard time getting off for the rest <laughs> of his life now. I saw a comedy show um, at, at some point, and they were, might have been the Michael Shea special on Netflix, which if you haven't watched it, you should. Um, where he goes, like, you know, encountering a new fetish is really dicey because it's like, you get a boner from it, you're like, I guess this is me now. Damn it. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> but, like, the the other thing is, like, there's a whole, like, that that whole sequence, it, there's a whole breed of, like, delinquents, supposedly, in Japan, who, like, they all they want to do is grow up to be Yakuza members. And, like, that's what they want to do with their lives. And, like, her... Well, you, know, you know that there, there totally exists like that guy in New Jersey oh, who's like the totally. New Jersey equivalent of that for like the Italian American mafia. Oh yeah. No, no, I'm not saying that's an exclusive thing. I'm just saying like it is. Oh no, I'm just saying, I think it's hilarious. Like I, I just want to bring that up real quick. We're like, let's imagine this guy who wants to be like a member of the Italian American mafia real quick, where he's just like wearing track suits all the time. He's got like a nasty steroid habit. Basically, you know. Buddy from Cake Boss, but without, like, the fame. Cake Boss. <laughs> Which I hear, I don't know, like, I... 
basically anybody who lives in Hoboken hates that place. Google Google Cake Boss DUI sometime. Oh god! When you get the chance, it's awful. Oh, god. It's an awful news story from last year, I think, maybe the year before what that. But it's it's ridiculous. Um, and then so that brings us kind of to the very end of the movie, um, which let's go over this last scene a little bit because it is a gnarly. Um, so then basically, uh, Oren Ishii and the bride have a final samurai sword duel with Hattori Hanzo Steel. Yeah, and, um, they... This is, this is what... They're in a very traditional Japanese the... garden. It's, like, super snowy. And this is where she chops off... Lucy Lou's fucking skull. skull. She chops off... She chops off... <laughs> A like, Yamaka like feed the brain cross. falls backwards. No, she basically chops off like a nice yamaka sized cross section of Lucy Liu's skull. Yep. And then it just falls off in the snow, and she just has that flat, level Ginsu knife <laughs> going through a soda can. Do they show her from? Am I crazy? Or do they show her from the front with the like full on? Oh, no, they show her from the front with just a line across her scalp, and then her scalp kind of slides a little bit. It's just so not level. Yeah, like, there's a... There's a slight slope. There's another another anime reference. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of the fifth of the North Star. No. So, this is... If anybody hasn't seen the Fist of the North Star, it's an old, it's an old cartoon. I think you can still see it on Hulu. Um, and the idea is that most of what the main character does in this show is he'll like use pressure points and hit you fast enough where just like ten minutes later you'll just explode. Yeah. And like that's a, and there's a, gotta be a name for it. I forget what it is. But like it's like a delayed it's like a delayed reaction cut or like punch or something, and that's a really yeah. common motif in like usually Japanese fight sequences where they just straight up don't want to spend a whole lot of money. Like uh-huh. this is like this is like a we are at the end of the budget. This fight needs to be over, but it still needs to be badass. So you swing the sword, you die, and we'll figure it out in post. <laughs> There's a lot of that in uh, in Kung Fu from Hong Kong and Taiwan and, and also just various different locations in Asia. Well, because... Uh, where, where it's just the... It's the same thing as uh, black exploitation in America, where yeah. it's, you have a, uh, a market that has a high demand for film, but a, a limited amount of capital for yeah, investment. Yeah, and the, and the, the demand is pretty much as high as it is in America, but the, like, capital allotted to each one. Like, imagine if no movie in America got more than, got more money than that Seth Rogen, um, James Franco joint, This is the End. Yeah. Like, imagine if they all had that budget. That was the maximum budget an American movie ever got. Like, all the movies would look similar to, like, most... Japanese live action or Asian live action cinema, which is yeah, 
Like uh, actually, I was just listening to another podcast today. Um, How did this get made? Which is like a a, a bad movie podcast. Oh yeah, I listen to that from time to time. What was their? Uh, so this week their their movie was Escape from L.A., which was a oh, movie God. that was made in oh, 1995 God. as a sequel to Escape, Escape from, from New, New York. York. Yeah, it was made 15 movies uh, 15 years later, and it was made the same year as Jurassic Park. Now, the movie Escape from L.A. got a $50 million budget and looks like straight garbage. Like, it looks <laughs> yeah. like hot garbage that you fried on every, a skillet. Every, every still I see from that, I'm like, wait, but how? Oh, no, it's so bad. But then, like, okay, so that got slice so million. backwards. And then they said on the podcast that Jurassic Park, made in the same year, looks amazing, even today. $65 million. Like only $15 million more bucks. Which, which, yes, that's a lot of money. But when you look at it proportionally, $50 million, $65 million is not that much. Is not and that much also, more. like, Jurassic Park had a whole other thing to deal with because it was one of the first and still one of the best implementations of complete cgi with live action might with, i with, add with live in addition to live action i mean of course it's always now, like the lighting of that the lighting of jurassic park is very forgiving the lighting in that movie and the conditions yeah. of it were primed for cgi to be introduced but that being said they still made a massive accomplishment that holds up today whereas i i think you'll find escape from la does not hold up even five um, minutes from after it was released, what I understand. Which, which, while we're on the subject of money, real quick, I just want to address, because this is something that I'm interested in, um, and I'm sure your audience will find a little bit interesting, um, the budget for this movie. So, estimated budget that I'm seeing on IMDb. Do you want to take a guess? I want to say, maybe... He's never a big budget movie guy, so I'm going to say yeah. maybe... Ten millions pushing it. Okay, well, it's it's more than you think. Really? Uh, it's thirty million. Oh, okay. Thirty million estimated. So you're you're in the ballpark. It's tens of millions. Yeah, like tens I, of millions. I, I, it's not I would think. I would think that because was this shot on location? Yes. Okay. A lot of it was shot so, on location. A lot of it is Japan production costs. Probably Japan production costs. Permit cost. I get what you yes. get there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and also, this... now, real quick, uh, the gross. One year after the movie was released, two thousand four, the gross for this movie. Yeah. Seventy million ninety eight thousand one hundred and thirty eight dollars. Oh, so basically, he Rob Zombie did. Okay. Oh yeah, he totally. No, he asked for a lot of money, but they knew they were gonna make a lot of money. Well, you know what Rob Zombie does, right? Yeah. Is he? Takes intentionally B horror projects, like yeah, like du- House of directs them, directs yeah. them very specifically, so he knows they'll be successful. But the studio can't tell what the fuck. So then he borrows, he basically buys the movie from the stu- the movie rights from the studio at like bargain basement prices. Oh yeah, and shops it around to everybody who will take it. And that's, yeah. like, how he made his millions, which is, like, really, from the guy who made, like, House of Gore or whatever it is, like, really inspired. You're just like, whoa. 
Oh, yeah. And let's not forget, like, this movie is a knockout cast. So $30 million is bargain basement prices for this cast. You've got Uma Thurman yeah. as the bride. You've got Lucy Liu as Oren Ishii. Both of those women were at the top of their careers. I mean, uh, like, Viv- this was, Vivica like, right a. around... Daryl um, Hannah. Yeah. This was um, right around when the Lucy Liu episode of Futurama was out, I think. Yes, 100%. 100%. This would have been right around that time. Um, let's see real quick. Uh, I'm just trying to see, like... Oh, um, also, something I want to touch on real quick before we're, we're 100% out of the podcast. Um, huge contribution to both soundtracks of Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2 by uh, one of my favorite hip-hop producers, The RZA. We mentioned MF Doom, yeah, but he, I couldn't get out of this podcast without mentioning The RZA. They, um, they have a big... I know that, um, what's it called? Uh, the Wu-Tang Clan are seriously big into Jap- into Japanese, specifically Japanese culture. Oh, absolutely. And, and well, all of Asian culture, and they're also, um, throughout all of their albums, they're constantly using samples of kung fu movies as, like, touchstones and, like, pop culture references that are, like, they sound super dope when you put kung fu fucking samples inside of a hip hop album. It just sounds fucking cool. Now, the last thing we need to talk about is the like just desserts of this poor, poor fucking woman. Yeah, well, that's where we're ended <laughs> off. Is this woman is only she's gone through hundreds of Japanese gangsters, two internationally renowned assassins, and she's just getting fucking started well that 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 that's true but do you remember who she who she well you should you fucked it today do you remember who she leaves to give kill bill the message and how she leaves that person oh yeah uh completely covered in blood like completely covered in blood in the back of a in the back of a trunk in tokyo on her with way no, to be assassinated. With no limbs. Yeah. And like, just, just like, says, call him. Call him. Now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. That's so intense. And that's such a great closing moment that I feel like is so over the top and has you so ready for that second movie to come Do, around. Um, was this like a Harry Potter deal where they shot it? They shot this as one big yes. thing and then chopped it in half, yes. right? Oh Yeah, 100%. So the script was written originally as one super long movie. Like around the like, world, an 80-day level of crazy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the IMDb page, I believe, said uh, the original shooting script was 220 pages long. Okay. Which average for the movie industry, they say average for like your first feature length, it should be about 120 pages. Okay. Plus so an additional 100 that. pages of dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Which again, they also say about one page of uh, script equals one minute of movie time. Yeah. Okay. So a two, 220 minute movie is a hard sell. That is a hard, hard sell to a studio. I don't know. Have you, have you seen The Wind Rises? 
I mean, <laughs> that definitely, I, that definitely, like. I mean, you want to talk about Miyazaki just Titanic? Having, I mean, you know, just having a real fun time telling the story about how the inventor of the kamikaze of the plane they, that kamikazes used in World War Two was a real asshole to his wife. Oh. <laughs> for cool. like. Cool. The entirety of sounds, their marriage sounds what uplifting. The fuck? And that's not uh, an airplane joke. <laughs> oh, that movie's weird. Oh man! All right. Well, this has been a blast, dude. I'm I'm super psyched. Um, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna hang up, and we can like discuss like kind of details.